Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Charlie Gladstone here and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very, very much indeed for joining me. I hope that you are well and happy and that the light is good where you are. I'm sitting in Wales and it's the morning and we've got one of those lovely, clear, awesome days. But I've been in the car a huge amount recently. I've just done, I think by my calculation, just over 30 hours in the last 10 days, which is actually too much. The great advantage of that is that I've been able to listen to some brilliant podcasts, but it seems to have been drizzling almost the whole time, and that makes the whole experience just a little less enjoyable. I've been listening, to, as I say, to a vast number of podcasts. I've been going on a bit of a Mark Maron jag. I think that Mark Maron's WTF is perhaps something of an acquired taste for some people, although it may just be the biggest podcast in America, and I think he is absolutely brilliant. I think some people struggle with getting through his monologues at the beginning of each podcast, which I actually love. But I listened to one in particular with the um, singer of The Who, Roger Daltrey, that I thought was amazing. But I've also listened to Eric Idle and John Cleese and a bunch of other people, in fact, including Kurt Vile, um, and also some people who I'd never heard of. Anyway, I digress. Um, today's conversation is with Alex Gregory, MBE. Alex is a rower, or was a rower, and is in fact best known for winning successive gold medals on the, in the 2012 and 2016 Olympic Games. But he's actually much more than just a rower or a retired rower, and has written a really interesting and I think wonderful book called Dad Ventures about doing things with your children outdoors. And it's very similar, in fact, to the book that Caroline and I did for Random House. And so Alex and I have a great deal in common. Anyway, Alex invited me to the Leander Club in Henley, which is an elite rowing club and also a place that you can stay and eat and drink. And I went there. I've been there before. In fact, my dad was a member of it once many, many moons ago. And their colours are pink. And dad always loved his pink socks from the Leander which seemed to him to be a signifier of the wonderful time that he enjoyed there. So I wore my pink socks and I drove down to Henley and I met with Alex. And this is our conversation. Just sort of jumping around a bit, and, and I think anyone who heard you at The Good Life or who's listened to the other extract on the podcast will know this, but um, you've won two Olympic golds and endless other championship medals. There, there was clearly a lot of discipline in that, but before that, you also had a period where you were, I mean, we were talking just inadvertently there about worry, but before that, the most fascinating thing that I think you said was that you cracked your ribs at a critical time in your career by essentially being too tense, is that right? Yeah, I think that was a significant part in, of the injury my tension, my stress. It was a, it was a complete, it, it was a mental stress, but it manifested itself in a physical affliction, I think, um, because I was just constantly t taut and tight in my body. Because you were so keen to get to the Olympics in 2008, or? Yes, not, um, not just for that event, but I had been, it had been building up for years and years. I had been so desperate to prove myself right, to prove 
everyone around me right and to put right the, the wrongs that I had done, the mistakes I'd made, the failures that I'd had. It was just this cycle of desperation to perform. And then it literally you were, you were doing a practice race or whatever and, yeah. and you pulled the, the oar and something snapped. Yeah, it wasn't even a practice race, it was just a training session. There was an awkward stroke where I looked around and suddenly, bam, this stabbing pain came in my side. And, and that was, it was, it was probably this, the, just the straw that broke the camel's back. Just before we talk about the Olympics, have you, have you done any massive long distance running or any of that, row, rowing rather, or any endurance stuff? Or have you got any desire to do anything like that? Uh, well, yeah, I have. I've, I've rode, I rode last summer in the Arctic Ocean, I did an ocean row. Which was a long, how long was cold. that? Uh, three, we were sort of at sea for three weeks. Okay, three weeks wow. rowing, ninety minutes on, ninety minutes off. Okay, um, yeah. For, so for that what? Was, what uh, uh, for a reason? Yeah, other good than question. Just plain nuttiness. <laughs> <laughs> it was an expedition that I became a part of. So I, after retiring from Olympic rowing, I had six months of freedom, flexibility, which um, we'll probably get to maybe. And then this opportunity arose to join this expedition, this rowing expedition north. No one had ever been, no one had ever rowed where we were intending to row before. We were intending to row further north than anyone's rowed before and then turn the boat round when we got to the ice cap, basically, and then head for Iceland. And, um, and so the distance, I think the distance was about 1,500 kilometres in, in, in the end. But, uh, but we were met with some difficulties along the way. What sort of, what sort of boat is... One rowing. I mean, is it how many people are rowing it? Two people. So there were six of us six on board. Of you. Okay. So it's an ocean, a, static, a typical ocean rowing boat that that might row. So there's the Talisker Atlantic rowing race now, which is incredibly popular. It's built up over years and years, and and now fifty odd crews do it each year or something like that. So it's just one of those. It was one of those. One boats. of those. Okay. Yeah. And and but you were the only boat on. Oh yeah, we were the only. Yeah. We were the only people. I find that concept of that terrifying. But was it good fun? Was it amazing? Was it, it life affirming? It was. It was. It taught me. It taught me a number of lessons actually, uh, which I do enjoy talking about for various different reasons. It was incredibly stressful time. It was quite a rush to get everything ready. It was a big project. Um, we 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 set off from Svalbard, and we just headed north. And we for three days and nights we rode north. Uh, and then we got to the permanent ice sheet, and it was beautiful. But, but it was beautiful. Twenty-four hour daylight, flat water, wildlife. This was what I was doing it for, to see the Arctic bird life. We were looking out for polar bears. Didn't see any polar bears, thank unfortunately or thankfully. But there were whales around and seals, and it was just utterly amazing. Amazing. And we were somewhere where no one had been, and then no one had rowed, and then we turned and started heading south. And no one had rowed up to there before? No, no one had wow. rowed by human power up there, but people have sailed and whatever, but no one had rowed up there. And yes, yeah, so we rowed further north than anyone's been before. We've got Guinness World Records for it. And then we turned and headed for Iceland. And after a few days, the weather changed. It got terribly rough and bad water. And it was unpredictable, very unpredictable. And if you're rowing across the Atlantic in these ocean rowing boats, the chances that quite often there's, there are capsizers and, um, and the boats are amazing things. They're corks, and they're, mm. but they're designed to roll. So they're designed to, if you do capsize, you never want to capsize, but if you do capsize, as long as the cabins are sealed, these tiny little cabins, 
like three foot long. As long as they're sealed, the, the boat eventually will self-right. But where, so hold on, so, and you're attached to? Yeah, we're tied on. Well, we tied so ourselves on. So if it rolls on. and you're rowing? Well, this is the problem. So if, in the Atlantic waters, if you roll and you're rowing and you're tied on, then you'll stay on the boat, you'll be wet, you'll get cold for a while, but then you'll recover and carry on rowing. In these Arctic waters, we discovered pretty quickly that if we rolled, and there were always three of us outside, the other three were in the cabins on the break, so 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off. If we capsized, three of us would, would die, would be dead. Because it's, you just so simply can't be underwater for long enough for it to right itself. Yeah. Basically, you can't you can't spend any time in that water without getting hyped. Right, and then even even if it rolls quickly or you scramble back on onto the upturned hull or whatever, then there's nothing to change into. There's no warm areas. There's nothing dry. There's there's it's it's disaster. And then you're still. We have an e, we had an EPIRB, all the safety equipment for emergency rescue and what have you, but. I mean, the time it takes to get a helicopter from Greenland or Iceland or wherever you If we you're are. in range, were you in range for if helicopters? You, well, we, were, we would always, it was a global satellite positioning right. system, so we, we... No, but I mean, I always think, because when, oh, you know, when helicopter these people range, get lost, you yeah, off, you know, off um, Tasmania or whatever, and you just, there's no way of getting a I helicopter see. there. Well, potentially not, potentially no. at times not, no. So it was, it became a, a pretty difficult situation. Did, so you didn't capsize or you did? No. We didn't capsize. And were you with people who you knew well? I mean, this is fascinating. I had no idea about this. It's great. <laughs> were you with people who you knew well before? No, no. We were a new crew. Uh, so two of the guys had rowed together before. Uh, they'd rowed across the Pacific Ocean before. But the rest of us, it was a, it wasn't a, it was it was a crew put together with in, in sort of semi like minded people wanting to, to have this experience. Do something extraordinary. Yeah, and um, I mean. Yeah, there, there were it was a, there were difficult times. Uh, but uh, how long were you away for? Three weeks. So we were on the water for three weeks. Yeah, yeah. because we didn't ended up we ended up not making it got complicated because of the weather. Because of the weather, and to start with it was twenty four hour daylight, but then the clouds came down. It grew quite dark, and and the the solar panels weren't charging the batteries properly, and because of the rough water, we had an auto helm which we plugged in with the, the amazing equipment. I mean. We plugged in the, the, the direction to, of travel to Iceland. Uh, the auto helm, auto steering rudder, mm, mm. basically kept us on, on, on route. But because it was so rough, the boat was going oh, all over the water. It was having to work overtime. So it was using so much power, it was draining our batteries. We relied on batteries for navigation, for communication, mm. and for the water maker vitally. And so very quickly, our, well, not very quickly, it took a couple of weeks, but our batteries drained down so much that we weren't going to get to land um, without right. to, to make, being able to make enough water. So you had to essentially sort of turn around like a plane that's running out of fuel and get to the closest place? Or? So we had, yes, yeah. we had to try and find the closest place. And we were in the middle of the Greenland Sea at this time. I mean, hundreds of miles from anywhere. And, uh, but we noticed... We knew, we knew it was there, but we, we obviously studied it with more intent, the map, uh, this situation. And there was this tiny little island called Jan Mayen. And, uh, and we knew it was a Norwegian island. You knew it was there because you'd done your research before yeah. the trip. Yeah. We, we'd we'd, we'd look, studied the maps and looked at the maps and looked at the route. And, but the intention was to get from A to B, to, from north to Iceland. So anything in the way was just, yeah, it's there, but we, 
hadn't really thought about it. But we had to think about it at this time. So we phoned up a contact we had, a satellite phone, a contact we had in Norway. Uh, and we said, look, can you, can you phone Jan May and see if there's anyone there? Does anyone live there? Can you see if there's anyone there? Because we're about three days away. We could really do with going there to re- recharge our batteries. And within an hour, or very quickly, time, time completely disappears, but very quickly this guy phoned us back and said, yeah, there's a military base there. Uh, they say you can go and spend the night there. So head in that direction. So we got that news. We switched off all the navigation, all everything, all the equipment, all the power, saved it for water. And, um, and by magnetic compass, our skipper steered us uh, in the direction wow. of Jan Mayen. And we just rode. And, and you made it. You found, I mean, so I, mean we, we, I, I, I was actually wondering whether that kind of skill of navigating properly is... Is, is a requisite for doing something like that? Could only one of you do it? Could you have done uh, it? Any of us could have done it, yeah. Right, it was, okay. it, yeah, so we, we all knew how to do it, but it, it has so many risks. I mean, we were just, we, do, we didn't have any, we just had a magnetic compass. We, so the risk is that, yeah, we might be heading southeast for three days, but the, the drag of the water, the, the oh, sure. current. I mean, that's why I asked, because, yeah. I mean, a small island in a exactly. vast sea. Exactly. You could easily have gone past it by a day and not really know you'd done so, presumably. Exactly. That was the risk. So, so three days came and went, and we were like, oh, shit, we've missed it. Uh, the, this, is, this is a disaster, because it was, ta- it was a generally a tailwind, so we were getting pushed south anyway. There was still 300-odd miles to get to Iceland if we'd from that island so so we uh we just carried on there was nothing else we could do we just carried on and then i remember coming out of the cabin for my shift pretty miserable looking round in the direction of travel for the millionth time and the clouds parted and right there a couple of miles away from us was this beautiful black rock which was the volcano of Jan Mayen. How extraordinary! It, it was the the just the most. Were the time? I mean, this is this is fascinating. Were, were the times on that trip where you just thought I've been really irresponsible? I mean, you're you know at this stage you're a father with young children. Did you think actually I'm I'm pushing myself into areas that are not that responsible or or not? This is a this was a huge thing for me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember there was one particular day where it was particularly rough, and. Um, one of the problems was when you were out there rowing, you had to, you had to be on it the whole time. If the wave was coming from the left. You had to be shout to your, your other two mates rowing, on the right, on the right, paddle into the right. So you move, you move your boat into the, yes. into the waves. And then it would come from the other side. So you'd be on the left, on the left, on the left. So you'd be shouting at each other when it was bad, just to make sure you don't capsize. And these waves would rear up around us there. I'd lost, I'd lost feeling in my feet for two weeks, basically, because the water had just got in. It had just come over God, us. God, I've done that in. for about an hour, and it's awful. But <laughs> yeah. the idea of it being for two weeks is... Um, I, I was, I was seriously league. concerned about yeah. my, my feet. I just couldn't feel them. And uh, the rest of the... It's funny, that, and I'd had experienced this with rowing before, but a very short time. Rowing is, is great for you, for you. It gets your body moving, and it... You create a lot of heat doing it, but your feet are the one thing in your body that are still 
and don't really move much. And mm. we had nowhere to walk. So we were literally clambering out of this cabin, twisting around and sitting down into your rowing seat. So we had nowhere to move yes. our feet. So and every other bit of you is moving yeah, exactly. with the, with the, pad, with yeah. the r- rowing, yeah. Okay, so I mean, I don't, I, this, this sounds to me like an entire sort of, you know, a, a three hour <laughs> action movie in, in and of itself, but just, just, I don't want to get caught completely on rowing because yeah, I think sorry, sort of po- yeah. no 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 I, I asked you and I'm fascinated I could talk about <laughs> this for for an hour but I think that I want to talk about the sort of post rowing thing but if we just spool back to that point where you've cracked your ribs yeah and it, your Olympic dream is shattered yeah monkey is he called monkey yeah monkeys is shattered you're feeling dreadful give me a kind of short pricey of what follows in the following month or whatever. I stuck around to get my rib healed while the guys went off to try and qualify that boat. And uh, they missed out by 0.2 of a second, incidentally, to Ukraine. So Great Britain didn't have a quad in the Olympics in 2008 because of me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, But it was when I was sticking around getting my rib healed that Jürgen Grobler, the great Jürgen Grobler, and uh, he walked up to me. And Jürgen was Sir Matt Pinsent's coach and Redgrave's coach. And you know, he is the most famous sports Hasn't he, coach. I mean, am I right in saying he's sort of won a medal in sort of 12 successive Olympics or something ridiculous? Exactly. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly it. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. So a 50-year career of, of winning medals. Consistent performance, yeah. It is incredible. And he has this magic. It's, it, it, we could go into that for hours as well. It's not magic. It's, it's intelligence and uh, intelligent intelligently dealing with people and young athletes. But anyway, he walked up to you and said, when, when your hero, your rowing coach hero walks up to you and says, Alex, uh, he's German, he's German, yeah. real deep German, Alex, I want you to be a reserve for my team. You just, you stop and listen and I'm injured. I've just let all these people down. I'm about to quit the sport. This was in another type of boat. So because this the four, was just the four hadn't made it. Your four. They hadn't made it, so I was just going to be a general spare, okay. general reserve for the team. So they take. He takes two, for the men's team. He takes two, every Olympics, every World Championship, every competition. He takes two. Oh, I see. Reserves. Okay. Okay. And they and they might end up in a exactly yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. So he was asking me to be one of the reserves, and I, I had to weigh this up really quickly. I had to make a decision really quickly. Uh, basically, my rowing career was over. I, I thought that I'd, I was going off to get a proper job, but he was giving me this opportunity. But how was I going to look at those guys I'd let down in the eye and say, you're not going to the Olympics because of me, but I'm going as a reserve. So I couldn't look at them in the eye. But you hadn't let them down, but, but you really That's felt what you I had. felt, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so and was that, I, I was that the his... main thing that was pulling you against doing it? Absolutely. Just being a decent person and... That... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, f- I felt incredible guilt. And I, fe- I felt, m- you know, I've got to be honest, I was more disappointed. I was disappointed for myself and, and yes, sure. the, the fact that I'd put so much years into this and failed. But also I felt incredible guilt. But Jürgen was giving me this opportunity and I had to take it. So I did. So a couple of weeks later, um, by that time, my rib had felt back to normal, I felt good. So I went off as a reserve and I flew off to Beijing with the team. And I, I had vowed then to be the best reserve I could be. I knew it was a, 
I knew this would be it for me. So after this, I'd walk away. But for the rest of my life, I could vaguely say I'd been to an Olympics. I'd been a part of a, an Olympic team. And everyone is so good. You know, when no one wants to be a reserve, everyone is aware of that. But everyone was so supportive. All the coaching staff, all the support staff and all the athletes, they were like, good to have you here, Alex. Great to have you here. And so I vowed to be the best reserve I could be. I would wash people's boats. I would wish them luck. I would carry their oars down. I would sit in a boat if, if they, need, they need me, whatever. And so I sort of vowed to be, to, vowed to turn this experience into something positive. And I had no idea that it changed my life. But I think you're, I'm right in saying that what, what changed for you then was that you, I mean, or this is how I read it or heard it, that you actually started to mellow out because you were not required to row. And so yeah. you started to enjoy it more. Is that... Is that me putting words into your mouth? No, that's exactly it. For the first time I was at an event, a major event, without any pressure or expectation on me. And I, I, and I had never considered that that was a, th a thing you could do, that you could, you could experience something without having to perform or step back. So now if I talk about this experience, I, I, I try and encourage people to, when they're in a stressful situation, just take yourself out of the situation. See things, you start seeing things in a different way. And that was mm. exactly what happened to me. I didn't have to perform. I didn't have to go and put myself through the stress of racing and, 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 and you know, um, worrying about whether I was good enough or not. I could just see it. And it opened my eyes to what I had been trying to do. Was he, was, he, was Jürgen helpful in that? I mean, presumably you've got an element of sort of psychological coaching, or was that not a thing at that stage? To be, to be, to be honest, it was everything that Jürgen does, his whole training, his whole programme is psychological training as well as physical training. And you don't necessarily see that when you're doing it. And so um, there, are, there are sports psychologists that we have access to, we can use and have been, I've found useful, but I think the bottom line is that Jürgen's whole programme is a train, is a mental training programme as much as anything. So uh, Jürgen, he's so clever because he knew that that experience would be good for me before, way years so before I knew You'd never it. met him before he asked you, or not really, before uh, he asked I'd you? I'd never been coached directly by him, but okay. I had been doing his training programme under the same roof. But, he, but you, so he'd essentially clocked you and thought yeah. that, that Alex, he's, he's a good one, and I, yeah. I think so do you think he was consciously thinking he may have hurt his ribs, but I think he's good enough? I do think that. For the future, I mean. I do, yes, I do think that. Yeah. I think that's the only reason why he would have asked me to come or why he would have brought me. He knew that I'd been through many failures and many disasters and many sort of had faults along the way, but he still gave me that opportunity. And I think the reason is because he saw that I was robust. He saw that I was committed. He saw that I was someone who could get over problems and still be there. He didn't know that I was going to walk away at that time he was giving me an opportunity because he saw a future in me which I hadn't seen or I couldn't really see so I, I am eternally grateful for him for yes because I mean he changed I mean so that that then changed everything because I mean without abbreviating something which is a a, a lifelong um work or with abbreviating it but not meaning to belittle it four years later yeah you win a gold yeah and, and do you genuinely believe that you would have walked away if he hadn't come? Or, or was that because you were in a sort of state, a spiral of stress I, and sadness? And 
anxiety and depression? I mean, do you think that you might have carried on, or was it? It was him, was it? That I th- honestly think that I was at the end of my tether. I, I, I honestly think that I had, I had believed that I had tried everything and had turned everything over, and so without that experience in Beijing. I wouldn't have seen that actually I hadn't turned everything over. I, I genuinely do think I, I would have stopped. Um, but, yeah, but like just very quickly, while I, while I was in Beijing, I realised what I needed to change, what I needed to do, how I needed to think, and it changed everything four years later. And what, 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 what was the shift? The if shift you can was... characterise it, you know. Yeah, very, very quickly. First of all, it was stepping back out of the stressful situation, see, being able to see things open my eyes in a different way. The other thing was realising what my weaknesses were. And I, I, all, my, all the, the answers for all the disasters before had been just to spend more time training, more time practising, more time doing practising technique, which is what I was already good at. I, I, was, I had just been doing the same thing time and time again, just spending more time doing it. What I really needed to do was just focus on one aspect of me, which was not good. And it was like a light bulb going off. And that was the tension, was it? That that, was... No, that was actually, that actually was physical strength. Like just pure physical. All these guys winning medals in front of me when I was sitting there watching the racing were 10 kilos bigger than me. 10 kilos heavier than me. They were just bigger guys. I was a light heavyweight rower. All these guys were bigger. And I thought, why haven't I addressed this? Why haven't I just focused on my strength and my size? And so I set myself a goal, 10 kilos, three months. Got home from Beijing, put 10 kilos, kilos on in three months. And I, I, got st- I was much stronger. But the reality is that what that did was gave me so much more confidence. It was the confidence that that mm, gave me. Mm. It was the confidence that I'd looked outside the box. I'd done something different. I'd gone against the, the sort of the standard program. No one had, no one had done that before. No one addressed, addressed something so specific in their training before, so intently. It, it gave me so much more confidence. So did that, that clicked with you? That wasn't something that the coach said to you or one of his staff said to you? Just clicked with you? Just clicked, just clicked with How you. How interesting. And without that experience, being exposed to that experience, if a coach five years before had said, Alex, we need to work on your strength, then I would have done more weight sessions. I'd have maybe got a little bit stronger, but I wouldn't have pursued it with such intent and such knowing that that was going to be the thing that was going to make a difference. So in fact, I mean, it, it, isn't, it isn't actually... Jürgen that changed everything, it's really more the broken ribs. I guess so. You know, if you haven't had the broken ribs and you had qualified, you might have, you say, you know, you might have got a bronze if if things went really well. And then your career might have petered out anyway. I I think about that often, yeah. Absolutely. I think I would have just carried on the way I was going because it was okay. But... Well, because also, I, I think there's this huge thing which you've just described very well of not being able to see the wood for the trees in life. Yeah. That's where, you know, running or exercise or, or t- you know, time walking in the hills is, is much more valuable than yet more time sending email or having meetings, isn't it? I, yet we don't allow ourselves to do that a lot of the time. No. And it's, it's, it's just stepping outside the front door that's the hardest thing with that. You think you have to spend more time doing those emails because there's a backlog. But actually, if you go out for an hour's walk, then you come back, those emails are done. 
incredible, You're in isn't a it? completely different mind. I get myself into quite stress thinking, oh, God, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm doing something all day. Come six o'clock at night, I'm going to have to do my emails. It's going to take hours. Yeah. And then if I get to it in the right frame of mind, it takes about 20 minutes. I'm not nearly as important as I thought I was. Or, you know, it doesn't, it's funny, isn't it? But um, just so, so you then embarked on, on a, a kind of seven or eight year um, career of, of um, unbelievable success. I mean, you, you won two Olympic golds in 12 and 16. Yep. But you also won endless other things as well, didn't you? Yeah, the, every year there's a world championship. So in the, in the years before, in, in between the Olympics, I won every, I was in a crew that won every world championships and a few before the first Olympic gold as well. Were you, were, did other people in that crew, I mean, were there other people during that period who won all the same medals as you or did you win more than... In, in the last six years of my rowing life, there were three people in the world who won every major championships in those six years. There were two New Zealanders, Hamish uh, Bond and Eric Murray. They were in a pair the whole time. Two of the guys in the, in the same And boat. you. And me. Incredible. And in that time, I'd been in six different crews with about 20 different individuals. And I, I, love, I love talking about this because on the outside, people think that, yeah, Alex, he thinks he's so good. He's showing off. He was the one. He was the, he was the other one. He was the one of three people. The reality is that I was never the best rower. I was never the strongest. I was never the fittest. I was never the most technical. I was not the most um, naturally talented rower. But what I was good at, what I did discover in that time after Beijing, when I had that realization to the end of my rowing career, was how to bring people together and how to get the best out of those people around me to, for them to pull me along and win those medals for me, in a way. And I love that, I love that, because anyone can do it. And uh, No, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> they can't, actually. I, I, well, that's my theory. Maybe. I mean, I, th I think, you know, there are, there are great leaders that are born and there are great leaders that are trained, but, but not everyone is cut out for it. Yeah, I guess. And I, and I think you can particularly see it in sports. I think that the, the ability to lead, it seems to me from the outside, and this is very well illustrated by the Premier League at the moment um, in football, is that actually the ones who have the je ne sais quoi, the charisma, are the ones who are doing really well. I mean, yeah. Klopp and you know, Guardiola, you know, these people who the, you imagine the entire clubs want to get behind. Yeah. And then the grumpy ones, like Mourinho, or the plain kind of uncharismatic ones, don't seem to do particularly well. I mean, I, I'm incredibly reductive, but I mean, I do think that, that not everyone can be a leader, and there is just something there in the ether that... But you think that was your... That became your skill, was it? I think so. I think leadership is a really interesting... And I'm just sort of learning how to talk about it and, and, and figuring out what I actually believe about it. But I think leadership is now starting to flip on... And I don't want to talk too much about this. No, no, this, I mean, but, but we should talk about this another time because I think it's interesting. Flip but, it on but, its head. But, but yeah, I believe that that is the thing that got me where I was, being able to make it easy for people around me to do their job better. I think that the greatest skill in leadership, and I do think about this a lot, although I have absolutely no qualification... Um, is, is the ability, which is something you're either got or you haven't, to like people and to be interested in people. And you, I don't think you can fake it. No, I love that. I absolutely love that. You're creating a culture when you start 
liking people and showing you and genuinely interested in people. Genuinely because, interested, not yeah. saying, you know, morning Bob, morning Jane, how are you? Uh, forgetting it a minute later. Yeah. So it, it, interestingly, so you, you come to this point of your life and, and you're doing all sorts of different and, and interesting um, things, a lot of which is kind of corporate work. But the thing that interests me most is your... Um, your, your book, Dad Ventures, and I'll get you to describe that in a minute, but you are, it, it seems from looking at you from the outside, and anyone who studies your, you know, your, um, particularly your website, will, will get the sense that you are a very kind of emotionally connected dad, um, and I'm sure husband as well, but you tend to write, as we all do, more affectionately about the children perhaps <laughs> than, than, than your wife, but um, obviously, with this focus and this travel, you were not seeing at this stage when you were rowing as much of your children as possible. And now you've written a book about dad ventures. I mean, describe that to me and the kind of where that came from. Yeah, dad ventures is a book that I suppose is a guide for parents. It's not. It's kind of a guide or an encouragement for parents to go outside, go outside the front door and spend time, basically spend time with their children. And it came from the time that I was away from my children while I was rowing, while I was pursuing my Olympic goals. We'd be away on training camp for two, three weeks at a time, every six weeks, throughout the year, all year, and then months at the end of the, with the big competitions at the end, months away. And time became something so incredibly important to us as a family. When we had children, the time that I was at home, we had to make the most of. And we always tried to make the most of. And the best way I knew how to do that, and we knew how to do that, was to spend time outside. It comes from my childhood, I think. Yeah, so you're, we, we're both your parents kind of outdoorsy types. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Dad, Mum and Dad owned a garden centre. So we were... My brother and I were at the garden centres, at the garden centre all day, you know, all weekend and what have you outside. And then our summer holidays were down in Devon at my grandparents, and they were, we were just camping and just lived at, lived in shelters we made and and stuff like that, swimming in their ponds, and it was just that was our norm. And so when it came to my children, I, I look back on those times so fondly and. Those are the things I remember about my childhood. I don't remember Tuesday afternoon coming home watching TV. Do remember digging a hole in the garden with Dad. So those are the things that I remember. And I wanted to give that. Absolutely, that to same my, with me. Yeah. My yes. So you so you would come home. Presumably, sometimes you're away during the school holidays as well, were you? I mean, the the or every year the, the yeah. World Championships were over the summer, hol summer holidays so I'd get home and the kids would go back to school <laughs> it, was a, it was ridiculous yeah. so, so, you were, so you were trying to create sort of intensity of, of, of experience and, and relationship through actually not sitting around watching telly but saying right guys let's go and do something Yeah, and, it, and, and it really worked for you and for them did it? Yeah I think so I think so and it, it never had to be a big amount of time. It just had to be something, something outside. Walking up and down the, the village, looking at things, pointing things out, or at a weekend, if we had a bit more time, afternoon, a weekend. I, I would train at weekends as well. So we could never, ever go away anywhere. We could never spend an, a night away. Always, I always had to be training in the morning at least. So in the afternoons, we'd go out to the woods and spend a couple of hours in the woods and doing something. Um, I also missed two of my children's births, which was a, quite a 
tricky thing to do. It was just part of my job. Um, no, it's hard. I mean, whether it's part of your job or not. I mean, you clearly, yeah. you know, in that profession, you had no choice. But that that has that has a that's a tough one. Yeah, that's for, for, for both of you, but particularly for your wife, obviously. I I, I beg to differ. <laughs> I don't. I don't. <laughs> no, but you know. No, I know. Yeah. I know. But I mean, so so this this so so t- sort of tell me, you know, talk me through kind of the structure of Dad Ventures, the, the book. I mean. The, the impetus is that you you know you believe in doing things outdoors, yep. and 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 the book is actually designed. You don't have to be in the middle of, you know, the Highlands of Scotland. You you can just do it in your local park or whatever, can't yeah, you? Yeah, ho- hopefully a lot of a lot of the book is can be done in the local park. It's divided into chapters based on time, so we have after school adventures, so that that grey area between picking up pick up from school and dinner time when no one knows what to do. And then two-hour adventures, um, two-hour activities or adventures or half-day, full-day, overnight experiences. And then also the last chapter is pushing away from land. So the, 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 the overarching philosophy around the book, and, and, I, and I, I get the impression from hearing you talk, this is something that kind of is really deep in your heart. I'm hitting my heart, but actually hitting my microphone there. <laughs> the idea is that, you know, you're going to create bonds. But, but what, beyond that, what is the kind of philosophy behind the, the book and the project well I think um, I think it's the, the realization that we are we are all so busy now and we cannot get away from our jobs our work our life and parents come home and they might have a weekend at home but they're still thinking about the Monday they're still thinking about the work they're still on their phone you know phones they're brilliant technology is amazing it's so I think we have to embrace it and I think it's good but it's, impo- it's almost impossible now to get away from it. So g- getting outside, having a bit of time outside forces you to break away from that in a way. And so I think it's, uh, the philosophy is, uh, it's, it's, great, it's a great question to sum up into a, a word. No, I, I mean, I, I, I understand that side of it. I mean, I, I suppose the, um, you, you might argue that actually because of technology, parental intervention becomes more necessary, which may not be an entirely good thing, because those games we had as children of playing outside the afternoon were absolutely frigging far more fun than doing the stuff with our parents. It was still good. Yeah. But, but maybe we have reached a point where without the parents really, not controlling, but sort of directing, things aren't going to happen. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think time... I think, yeah, I think time is important, and we... It's easy to miss time with our young people because of all the factors involved in life. And you're also quite a, an advocate of, of, of understanding a little bit about kind of what different clouds are and, and what different trees are, aren't you? Because that's certainly a concern, isn't it, that, that that's disappearing, yeah. even from country children. I mean, clearly there's been a distinction between city children and country children, and everyone has a story of people yeah. not knowing what a cow looks like or whatever, but, but I mean... It is something that our parents certainly, well, I think certainly my father's generation definitely grew up knowing trees, flowers, yeah. birds. Um, and, and you're quite an advocate of that, aren't you? I am. And, and even more generally than that, just noticing things. I think, I think, I think everything is, is in, intertwined here. But um, a gift my dad gave me which I only realise it now writing after writing this book, is the ability or the 
awareness of things around me. He was always pointing things out. He was always pointing out trees, clouds, fish in the rock pools or the ants down the pavement in a city. There's always, there is always something to look at. And I think that if, if we as parents, we don't have to know everything. We don't know everything. I don't know all the trees, but I'm interested in, in looking at them. And if I point these things out to my kids, they'll start to notice them. And they don't have to know about them, they don't have to study them, but as long as they notice them, then they start to care about them and, and have an understanding of how the bird lives in the tree and the ant lives in the city and whatever, whatever it is. And they start to care about the environment they're in and they're walking down and they're living in. When they start to notice these things, they start to care and they sort of want to look after them and they want to protect them. And, and I think... I totally agree. I mean, I think it's really interesting. And I mean, actually, it's, it's, a, it's actually a broader point, isn't it? Because if you live in the city, you can gain just as much by looking at a man-made environment, but just by actually looking at it. Uh, yeah, you, you st- when, you, when you stop and look or when you walk and look, you see things that you didn't know existed. I mean, London, London, for example, the heart, in the heart of London, I actually love going to London. I don't necessarily want to live there, but I love going to there because there you've got this 16th century church. Right there, you've got the Gherkin, which was built last year. It's, it's incredible change. Yeah, but I think what's interesting is, as you, I think you sort of imply, well, you said, you don't have to know who made the church or the Gherkin to find it interesting. Absolutely You not. don't have to kind of turn everything into... And I think that's one of the risks with... I mean, my father, with whom I had a great relationship, could actually just rabbit on too long sometimes about things. And so I would sort of ask him a question and I, my ears would almost close up because <laughs> yeah. it would be enough for him to say it's an oak. Yeah. But he would then go off on a tangent when I was young about you know where the oak had sort of first come from and its relationship with this and that. And I think, you know, that, that just saying that's a really interesting dome on that church. Look at that. I wonder how they built that. I don't that's think. enough, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, you know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of bite-sized chunks. Yeah. And children are innately interested in things. And I think it's adults who hamper those things or, or remove those, those interests as they grow older just because they're not, they're not taking notice of, oh, my, my child, he's interested in tractors. <laughs> uh, but you might, as an adult, you might not really that might not click with you, so you just don't talk about it. So yes. You, so then they lose that interest, or you don't consider it to be an acceptable interest yeah. or hobby. Yeah. Whereas actually, any hobby or interest is what you need, whether it's tractors or Rachmaninoff, it's valuable. I believe so. Yeah. I think so. So that's it. Thank you very much indeed to Alex. I really enjoyed talking to him and actually I could have gone on for a lot longer. That whole conversation about rowing from the north of Norway was something that I didn't anticipate at all and was fascinating and I think that he's a most interesting, modest man who probably can be a success at whatever he puts his hands to. We are scheming to do something together in Scotland with our new cabins and cottages businesses. You can find that actually on Instagram if you're interested. It's Glendye, G-L-E-N-D-Y-E, Cabins and Cottages on Instagram. And Alex and Caroline and I are plotting to do something up there together next May. I also gave him a copy of Dan Kieran's wonderful book, The Surfboard, uh, which I think is one of the books of the year and which we were lucky enough to host the launch party of at Peddlers last week. 
And um, I think that he'll enjoy that. But anyway, I'm rabbiting on. Thank you very much to Alex. Thank you very much to you, particularly. Thank you to my friend, Jim Friend, for editing this. And I will see you soon. Okay, bye. Bye.